Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. This is Thursday, March 29th of 2012, and our guest this evening is Andrew Tatarski. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon, and for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Andrew Tatarski. He's right here waiting for us. Good evening, Andrew. How are you doing this evening? Hi, Ken. I'm doing great, and I'm really glad to be back on your show. Well, it's good to have you back again. Um, this is Dr. Andrew Tatarski. He operates the Center for Optimal Living in uh, Manhattan, and he's written the book. It's called Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. It's been out for quite a while now. It's a really good resource that lots of people really like to use. It's an excellent clinical resource for clinicians. And I'm going to start a little bit. How did you get uh, involved in harm reduction? Well, I actually began working in the field with substance, people with substance use problems uh, 30 years ago. And I began working in the field in the traditional abstinence-only uh, model. And for the first seven or eight years of my career, uh, I was working from that point of view, and I actually wound up uh, as clinical director for a few uh, pretty well-respected programs. And while we helped lots of people, I think, over the course of uh, those years, when I looked at our numbers, um, our uh, outcome numbers, it began to become increasingly clear to me that the overwhelming majority of the people that were coming to our programs were not either sticking in treatment, we were having to discharge them for continuing to use drugs, or they were not establishing abstinence, which by that old model, is the only standard for success. And I, I began to become increasingly confused and alarmed at this abysmal failure and began to look around uh, at what other people were doing, and I noticed that basically this was the standard in the field. And I have to say, unfortunately, it still is to some extent. So I started to think about uh, what was wrong with that picture. Um, here we were blaming uh, or holding you know, patients responsible for failing, and I began to wonder what might it be about the model, the way of understanding addictive issues or problem substance use and the way of treating it. And what, what occurred to me is that the linchpin in that traditional abstinence-only model is the uh, abstinence requirement, the notion that People need to stop using to be in treatment and that it's the only uh, measure of success. And I began to wonder, well, what are the possibilities that are opened up if we relax that, if we let go of the abstinence requirement? And I began to experiment with uh, what at the time was considered blasphemy, you know, doing psychotherapy, doing treatment with active drug users, and to my um, delight and, and confusion, I found that lots and lots of these people really could make very good use of the therapy, um, in many cases reduced or actually stopped using and began to address other issues in their lives. And so my clinical experience was not jiving with the prevailing 
model, the prevailing paradigm. And so I began to, you know, share my experience with other clinicians, and I had the good fortune of having a relationship with Alan Marlatt, who some people consider one of the godfathers of harm reduction. And I told him my experience, and he said to me, you're doing harm reduction. And as I began to learn about the harm reduction model, it occurred to me that this model uh, completely explains the failure of traditional approaches, and it opens up a whole new way of thinking about how to work with people that I have found since that moment uh, to be increasingly um, effective and inspirational and um, sometimes, um, you know, contributing to what seemed to be miraculous change in people. So I've been, um, you know, that moment really changed my career and my life in 180 degrees and it's really led me to feel uh, committed uh, to uh, exploring the implications of harm reduction for all sorts of things, psychotherapy, self-help approaches like yours, um, and um, trying to get the message out. It was really a life-changing experience for me for the better. And so let me just say that what I've just outlined is my own personal journey uh, in what I'm considering um, uh, a kind of paradigm-shifting moment in our field. You know, this really constitutes a, a scientific revolution in new ways of thinking about problem substance use and um, treatment or self-help or any kind of uh, change process that's designed to support people in making positive change. Well, I think it's really an exciting time to be doing this because, as you said, there is a paradigm shift. Uh, have you looked at the SAMHSA new uh, definitions of recovery? Uh, I believe that I have. Um, not in depth, but um, it seems to me that new definitions of recovery, and I'm not sure if this is um, uh, exactly what you're referring to, but tend to emphasize growth, positive change, uh, improved quality of life, improved health, um, and not uh, necessarily emphasizing abstinence. Uh, I do know that uh, some of the federal uh, government is now redefining recovery to include non-problematic substance use. So, uh, and this is also happening at OASAS, the New York State Office of Alcohol and Substance Abuse Services. So, um, you know, this exciting paradigm shift is occurring at all levels now. But w what was the definition that you were referring to? Well, it's basically the things that you just mentioned. There are improvements in functioning, in health, in housing, in various aspects of living. And there's not an emphasis on abstinence as absolutely necessary. You know, it's it's kind of been removed. You know, it, it's it's more of an option now than a, than a necessary part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can I just say that I think... The word that you just mentioned is a beautiful word, and it's a very powerful word um, uh, that I think can um, promote itself, promote or contribute to promoting uh, positive change. When we offer people options, 
by definition, we're uh, respecting that person and we are empowering that person and we're supporting that person in uh, getting clear about who they are and what they need uh, and finding the option that best suits them. So that, I think, is at the heart of this paradigm shift from an older model that is prescriptive, it is one-size-fits-all, the authorities, the experts know what's best, and you're supposed to just take the medicine that's prescribed. Whereas this new approach is about diversity, multiplicity, um, empowerment, uh, you know, collaboration, you know, whatever the words are that we use, it's it's uh, it's a new way of human beings relating to one another that um, supports individuals in growing, and it's very exciting. Now, you call your approach integrative harm reduction psychotherapy. What do you mean by integrative? Well, I mean integrative on many levels. Um, on one level... It refers to my view that problematic behavior, whether it's substance use or other risky behavior, always is best understood as occurring in a complex matrix of personal, interpersonal, cultural, um, biological, psychological variables. And it never exists in a vacuum. And that's one of the fundamental problems with the disease concept. It reifies it and separates it out from all of the other aspects of people in their in their context, in their environment. This model, which I call a psychobiosocial multiple meanings model, that's a lot of words, but it um, really locates the problem behavior in a matrix of variables that is unique for each person. And so if we're going to uh, find an approach that's going to really support that whole person in their environment in positive change, it's going to have to consider what all of these variables are and bring together or integrate you know, uh, interventions, strategies, information, support that will address all of these various issues in that matrix. So it's got to be integrative. So we might think about the body and what does that body need, you know, to uh, to function more effectively, to be healthier. Or what does that psyche need? What is the emotional state uh, or condition? And what interventions may help address that? What is the social context? Um, the, the connection to community, the connection to family, the connection to people. Um and uh, we may need to be thinking about community-level interventions. Um, so that's one way I think about it. Another is that I believe that um, you know that lots that that all of the different therapy traditions and positive change uh, traditions and addiction treatment traditions have something of value and. When we're working to help somebody find an approach that's going to be best suited to them, we need to be willing to consider, you know, the value and the wisdom of all of these dif- different traditions um, in determining uh, what's going to be most useful to me or to you, 
you know, to that individual. And so I, I think that um, this is a way of honoring that fact, um, that, you know, whatever it is that I know and that I've brought together in my own therapy process, I've learned from colleagues, from supervisors, from friends, from family, from clients, uh, from elders, you know, in the field. Uh, and so I've been very interested in bringing together all of this wisdom uh, uh, in, in a therapy process. Well, I think it's very true that uh, some clients can uh, relate much more easily to a certain type of uh, therapy than other clients might relate to. Just my own experience, I'm a very rational type person. I'm very big on the rational mind and rational thinking. And I find a cognitive behavioral approach is very easy for me to apply, and I'm very successful mm -hmm. with it. I have mm -hmm. other friends that... Um, they like Buddhism, they like meditation, they find things like the DBT, the ACT, things with that mindfulness component are very successful for them. So I think, you know, it's it can really help to match the therapy to the client. And this is what I think is another key to the power of a harm reduction approach. Essentially, the, the harm reduction principle, the fundamental tenet, which is to meet the client, meet that individual where that individual is, suggests that the, that the provider, the practitioner, the helper uh, needs to meet that person without a predetermined agenda uh, because we've got to help that individual figure out their own agenda, their own best agenda. And just as you said, it's going to vary from person to person. So we need to, if we're going to be supportive to uh, an individual who's struggling, we need to be ready to pull from as many different hats as we can um, uh, to offer the client a technique, an idea, you know, a strategy to try on. Uh, and together in this collaborative way, we might be able to support that person in finding the approach that is going to be best suited to him or to her. Now, and that's what I think is the fundamental um, uh, essence of, of a harm reduction psychotherapy approach. Okay. The email you sent me, uh, you have a phrase, mindlessness to mindfulness. What does that phrase mean? Well, it's a, it's a kind of homage to um, a friend of mine, uh, Pavel Somov, who uh, has written a number of wonderful books on, mind, on mindful approaches to behavior change, one of which is called Smoke Break, which I uh, actually wrote the um, introduction to. And he has a very nice way of talking about habit. Um, he calls the smoking habit the smoking zombie and uh, essentially he believes that habits are mindlessness. Essentially, when we uh, have established a habit, we no longer need to think about it. And if it's a good habit, if it's an adaptive habit, that's a good thing because we couldn't possibly be thinking about every single uh, moment, uh, making choices about how to act. But when these habits are maladaptive or they're not working for us, now we've got this mindless, automatic uh, motivation to engage in something over and over again. 
um, to our detriment. So what he suggests is that simply bringing mindfulness, mindful awareness to these activities is transformative. And then he reframes the behavior change process from stopping the bad behavior or the, the maladaptive behavior to mindfulness practice. So whenever you feel that urge to engage in that behavior that you're interested in changing, rather than struggling with the urge, he suggests uh, take that as a moment to move into mindful meditation practice. Uh, and I think it's a beautiful reframe so that the the process of behavior change becomes one of becoming more mindful, more aware, more connected to the present, more connected to ourselves. And from that standpoint, we can then uh, bring our rationality um, to thinking through our options and making better choices for ourselves. Well, I certainly found uh, when I was getting rid of my cigarette smoking habit, I found that it was a very mindless habit. Um, (laughs) I used a slightly different approach, but one of the things I did was to start charting each cigarette and it was extremely difficult you know at first i would you know find this half smoked cigarette in my hand and you know i hadn't written it down and it took a long time but you know the more i was charting the more i was aware and actually the less i was smoking so it's it's not quite mindfulness practice but it is a way of becoming aware and becoming less of the robot well, it's a different kind of mindfulness practice, but I think it is mindfulness practice. Um, you know, I recommend uh, to everyone, you know, who's interested in making some behavioral change, that they do exactly, if they don't do anything else, but begin to chart uh, or track the behavior, you begin to see change. Because if you're committed to charting, then you're committed to thinking about it and reflecting on it. And so that automatically moves you into a more mindful state, as you found. But what he goes on, though, is, I mean, it's really, a, a, I, I really enjoyed uh, reading this book because it's loaded with um, mindfulness meditations uh, around smoking. So, for example, oh, you know, he... He has he suggests doing art projects, you know, where you dress up your pack, <laughs> um, or um, you know, tie bells to the pack, you know. So whenever you go for that pack, you know, you're going to think about it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be harder to kind of automatically light up the cigarette without thinking about it. Um, now then, he he goes on to say one other thing, which is the mindfulness practice then becomes what he calls a craving control strategy. And I think he he says it in a very nice way, and I talk about it in a slightly different way. Um, but the essential point is that often people fail at behavior change because they attempt to make the change without having the necessary skills. Mm-hmm. And it's like you know showing up at a mountain and deciding you're going to climb it, but you don't have the equipment, you don't have the skills, you don't have the route. 
So he suggests while you're contemplating quitting smoking, you can engage in all of these different practices designed to increase your skill power. And once you've got your skills together and you can really manage cravings, then you can pick your quit date. Or we might say he even says you can do it in a harm reduction or you know, sort of reducing smoking uh, goal. <clears throat> I would call this urge surfing. You know, if you can notice an urge and bring mindful awareness to it and breathe into the urge and hang out with it, now you're surfing that urge and you're not acting from habit. And and as you practice urge surfing and get better at it, you can then begin to think about, you know, doing your decisional balance, you know, your pros and cons, whether you want to engage in the behavior or not, and you could think about alternatives. And so the urge surfing or craving control technique then brings you to the moment where change becomes possible. You know, that's what the urge is. It's that it's that access uh that opens up the possibility of change. Yeah, I think people often underestimate the need for preparation before they make a change and they try to jump right in there. I know uh I was spent I spent a couple months planning about quitting smoking before I started the process. You know, I made plans of various things to do. I was going to chew on cinnamon sticks instead of cigarettes as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I did the same thing. When I started a diet uh, in January this year. I'm down 17 pounds, so that's pretty good. But I, yes. spent, I spent all of December, you know, talking about, you know, how I was going to do this, making a plan. You know, I was sending emails to my friends on the email group, even though it's an it's an alcohol group, but we can talk about anything there. So yeah, uh-huh. well, here's some plans I have to make, and you know I can't you know let this destroy my social life, or I'll go nuts, and you know then I'll so. But you know I, I did a lot of preparation time, and it has really paid off because when I've tried to do it before without preparation, it doesn't it doesn't succeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the the techniques that I find useful that is very consistent with what you just said, is what I call the ideal use plan. It's a strategy designed to help you think through what your goals are. You know, what are your ideal goals? Um, And then once you've gotten clear about what your ideal goals are, then you need to really think through what are the changes that I need to make in my life uh, that will support the implementation or achieving those goals. And so it's all about envisioning, you know, a new set of possibilities, uh, which is a necessary part of the preparation. Or else, how do you know where you're going and how you're going to get there? Okay, I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about the Center for Optimal Living and what's going on there and what kind of things you have planned there and just tell me about it. Okay, well, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm very excited about the center. Um, After 20 years doing harm reduction psychotherapy in my own private practice, training professionals nationally and internationally and supervising professionals, I finally decided that it was really time to have a center in New York City that 
would showcase integrative harm reduction psychotherapy that would make it available to people that would develop the model uh, beyond just an individual psychotherapy model, but um, as a comprehensive services uh, psychotherapy center. Where So now we have seven clinicians who are all uh, specialists in addictive behavior and problem behavior change and um, committed to integrative harm reduction psychotherapy, people I've worked with, I've trained, supervised. And we now have options to see people in very minimal um, ways, if that's what they choose or that's what they need. could be one group, one individual session, you know, a single consultation to help people come up with a plan. Or they could be seen very intensively in individual therapy, in groups, uh, in um, family therapy, couples therapy, uh, and with a whole range of complementary practitioners that are collaborating with us nutritionists, uh, fitness people, doctors, psychiatrists, so we can put together a very comprehensive plan um, with a network of practitioners that are, you know, that are that have fully bought into the harm reduction framework that we've been talking about. Um, now, another aspect of the integrative harm reduction model is. We believe that you know there have been a lot of splits in the field between the cognitive behavioral people, for example, and the psychoanalytic mm-hmm. people, or the experiential therapy people, the gestalt therapists, uh, music therapists, and so on. And um, we really believe that behavior change is best achieved when you've got some integration of active skills and strategies to support and promote positive behavior change alongside of a space to explore, to discover, you know, meaning, the meaning of the substance use, the meaning of the problem behavior, and how it relates to other issues in people's lives. So um, some of our groups are more skills-based. Dr. Jennifer Talley, who you had on the show not long ago, is running a, um, a an emotion management skills group, which now is uh, filled, and so we're going to be starting a, a second one. Uh, patients are really liking it. It's where they can learn these skills um, that they can bring uh, to craving control and urge surfing um, and relaxation and stress management and so on. And then we've also got groups that are more open sort of process-oriented, less structured, uh, where people can get into and explore very deep personal issues. Um, so the the center is kind of a safe space for people to grow and to heal, and we help people figure out in a very collaborative way a plan that will be uniquely suited to them, you know, with lots of resources available. Okay, do you have any workshops or anything coming up? Oh, thank you. Um, This is another important part of our philosophy. Um, As I said before, we think that uh, one of the things that has been very valuable in a lot of addiction treatment uh, in the past is the community aspect because I think individuals really need community. And 
you know, there are not very many communities for people who are working on harm reduction from a harm reduction perspective. Uh, HAMS uh, is one of the few, actually. So I've been so happy and excited that you started uh, HAMS to make that aspect available to people. But what our community intervention is at this point is a lecture workshop series that patients or members of the public, anyone can come and participate in as a community member, not as a patient. And these lecture workshops will uh, offer some experiential and didactic information that will leave people with uh, a technique, with an idea, with um, uh, some practice or process that will enhance their quality of living. And so we are now putting together our, um, uh, we're calling it the Third Thursdays program. It will be starting in September, and we will have uh, some expert in some area of optimal living uh, presenting. Uh, That will include people doing mindfulness practice, uh, nutritionists, uh, physicians, a music therapist, uh, lots of uh, interesting people, including you. Uh, we're inviting you to come and uh, do a workshop on hams and you know, your harm reduction for alcohol. We'll be inviting someone from Moderation Management uh, to do an introduction to that program. Um, so we expect that that will be a very exciting part of of the Center for Optimal Living, and and it will also expand over time, we imagine. Um, and ideally, it, it you know we hope we, it, to eventually make it a weekly um, part of the you know our program. Well, it sounds really good. It looks like we're about out of time, so I want to remind everyone the book is called Harm Reduction Psychotherapy by Andrew Tatarski. You can find him on the web at andrewtatarski.com. That's correct, isn't it? That's correct. And, uh, and there are, I've got some writings that I've also got up on the website people can download for free if they want to learn more about our approach. Okay, and so thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Andrew Tatarski. Thank you very much, Ken, for having me. And everyone, come back next week when our guest will be uh, Dr. John Pasagianis, who will be talking about substance use and harm reduction among young people, among the artists, the artistic community. should be a very interesting show. See you all next Thursday, and good night. <laughs>